Today's episode is sponsored by Teleport, the easiest, most secure way to access infrastructure. Visit goteleport.com for more information. All right, hello. Joining me today is Ev Constavoy, the CEO and co-founder of Teleport. Ev, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Uh, good morning, and uh, thank you for inviting me. All right, Ev, we were just chatting in our extensive pre-show interview uh, about a very controversial topic that I want to bring you in on. It, in my research, I found that you are, you know, a VI Vim proponent of uh, editing. So you said in the pre-interview, I'm going <laughs> to quote you. This could be the most controversial thing in this entire episode. Is that not many people use Emacs anymore? And so I want you to defend that statement. Is that really true? Because I feel like Emacs is a very passionate user base, but I think you're representing <laughs> to me that maybe has Vim really overtaken it completely? Is that the only true editor? So look, first of all, let me just get vulnerable for a second. And the reason why I much prefer Vim and sometimes make jokes of uh, like Emacs people, it's probably because I'm jealous. Because when I tried to learn Emacs, because when I was uh, like a teenager and I was trying to, like I really wanted to use tools that like all the best engineers in the world use. And Emacs was uh, obviously top of the list, but unfortunately I only have 10 fingers. <laughs> and for that reason, I just failed. And yeah, it's I, I, I think I earned my right to be a bitter and disappointed about it. But the fact that I did manage to master Vim and, and uh, to, to this day, I believe it's probably the most productive editor one could possibly use. That's kind of background. And that's why I think that Vim is the best thing since sliced bread. And also, I think at every company I started, uh, we, we did a little bit of uh, kind of statistics, especially in the early days where everyone knows everyone. And I do believe that Vim was more popular than Emacs. Not by a lot, but I think it was always a winner. It's kind of kind of, kind of like cats versus dogs. Cats always no, lose. I think yeah. you're right. Well, I mean, I think Vim, I mean, that's sort of the VI, right? It's it, it's it's always there, no matter what. Right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's maybe the other thing. It's like, you know, you know, you can always get to that. Like Emacs, usually there, takes more effort. But I like, it's a very diplomatic answer. I think you gave an extremely diplomatic like. Emacs is just hard because I do agree. Like, I I am not an Emacs person. I never, frankly, I never got into them. I'm it's I, I genetic. So, so we, we like there is an Emacs gene and a Vim gene. So I inherit like my parents gave me the <laughs> Vim thing, and uh, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> and you feel it. Yeah, okay. I I definitely hit the wall uh, trying to master Emacs. But our CTO, so uh, he's an Emacs kind of person. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the true test of a CTO. They had to ma master Emacs. <laughs> yeah, like, they don't you. know Emacs. Smart people use, yeah, like smart people, they master uh, very challenging tools. All right. Well, we'll leave the audience to uh, decide for themselves whether or not w which is better. I'm sure I'm sure there are very few opinions on the internet about that. But um, but you kind of mentioned your background, and that's another interesting place to start. Uh, I know you're originally from Russia. You went to school in Russia. And I just, I just want to know what it's like to go to, if I'm saying it right, the Siberian Federal University. Is that correct? Is that where you went to school? Technically correct. But uh, to uh, maybe uh, introduce a little bit of uh, clarity here. So I grew up in Soviet Union. So okay. it was a completely different country. It was much bigger. And Russia was just one of 15 different republics within that country. But in Soviet Union, I was born in Belarus, which is now a separate country. So it's that complicated. And if you were then to ask me what it was like to go to school in Soviet Union, Again, I was very little, so I don't remember much. But what uh -huh. I do remember is that if you like growing up back then in like this kind of Soviet environment, the science and technology they were prestigious. It was kind of a cool thing to um, uh, dream about if you were a kid. Uh, obviously, no one 
uh, wanted to be a TikTok or YouTube influencer <laughs> back then. That wasn't really a thing. But if you were to ask kind of like a 12-year-old, like who, who do you want to become? You'd be shocked how many people will say like nuclear physicist or molecular biologist. So uh, that was the environment. And um, I would say it was great. So everyone I knew wanted to be an engineer of some kind. And um, I particularly was uh, attracted by things that fly. So aerospace engineering was like, I was supposed to be that, but right. it didn't happen. Build some rockets and that, you know, cause I always think of, um, you know, again, that's probably just a stereotype, but I always, I feel like, you know, Soviet Union, especially, especially like turns out like a lot of just great scientists. Like I just, I don't know. It's maybe just the, an yeah, you start early. Yeah. yeah um, you get kids really interested in that in a special age. Like we used to have this, um, um, kind of boarding schools that are like, it's just physics and mathematics. Like, like really young kids would go there. And the idea is by the time they're like 12, 14, they already know just as much as high school kids. So this kind of boarding schools for talented uh, kind of kids that was a big thing in Russia. Or Soviet Union, should I say. It's a huge difference. Like, I don't know much about... I'm not an expert on all things modern Russia because I, uh, like, I moved to America a long time ago. Well, like, take us there then. So how did you get to the United States? And then, you know, I want to hear the story because, you know, I'm here in Austin, Texas. I know you eventually got to Austin as well. So tell me that whole story. How did you get to the U.S. and then how did you get to Austin? Well, if if you look back into like mid-90s, late 90s, it was the time. So I was, uh, I was graduating like, uh, from a university. It was also the time when you had to buy a computer, like new computer every year. Remember? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, everything was like twice as fast. Like yep. you purchase your computer and then Doom comes out and it's slow. Then you buy another computer and now Doom flies. So things were changing quickly. And if you were into programming like I was, uh, so the time was kind of an issue. So let's say 386 CPU comes out from Intel. And so it takes time for documentation for new assembly instructions to be published. And then it would be like some extra time for... Um, like in Russia, to get a translated copy into Russian. By the time you're reading it, like you understand it's already obsolete. <laughs> so that kind of lag, I just kind of knew that there's just so much is happening so quickly, but it's all elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm here in Siberia. And it became clear to me that I need to learn English and I need to move to a country where that's basically giving all this amazing technologies to the world. It was also the time where internet was starting to be a thing. And it just felt to me like everything amazing is happening in the US. And it was true. So right after graduation, so I never really worked in, in, in Russia. Like I got my diploma and uh, <laughs> like, almost, instantly, <laughs> almost instantly ended up in Texas. Yeah. And is this where you joined National Instruments? Is that how you... When you yep, uh... yep. So National Instruments was my first, uh, let's just put it, the, the real job um, out of college. And it, it was an amazing experience. That company is, uh, again, I haven't lived in Austin for a while, but back then I think it was probably the... Uh, most exciting from my perspective, a place to work if you are a software engineer. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's funny because we've actually done, you know, a bunch of these interviews and obviously I'm in Austin, so it's a little skewed, but like, I'm amazed how many people like did worked at NI at some point, especially in that, like, I'm going to say late nineties, two thousands, like, you know, people always talk about like where startups come from and like Stanford and all these different places. But like, I, I think there's like a really strong NI alumni that sort of that have gone on like yourself and several other people I know to start companies, to like branch out business, start business and really achieve some pretty high level executive positions. So I don't know, maybe that's sort of like a hidden secret uh, about Austin, about NI specifically. And people always talk about the culture. 
Go ahead. Like, like actually getting in, I think that's really the answer. Like, and I was incredibly selective. Like, I've never been to an interview process where I was grilled on both the algorithms and also low-level computer internals. Like, I had to answer questions about, uh, like, how like there was some really low-level stuff about how like stack works in x uh, x86 in, uh, architecture. So they would drag you like. Uh, from kind of like big O questions, that's all kind of computer science algorithmic stuff, all the way down to uh, how variables are aligned in memory on, on stack. So never before or after I've been, uh, like I was grilled uh, that hard on technical concerns. And then once you get in, you realize that you're surrounded by people that are at the very least just as smart as you are, but more likely they're actually even smarter. And yeah, it was an amazing experience. I was like maybe 21, 22 years old. You, you go to work and like, it's like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. Like, and almost no one leaves. There's just plenty of people walking around, like working on their side projects. Uh, it, it felt quite special. And I, I was like, oh my, like, I was so happy that I'm an adult. Like this mm-hmm. is the life I'm going to live now. That <laughs> was just good, good times. Good times. Life can still be fun when you're working. That's all I like it. No, it's very true. And I guess I, I keep saying NI. I don't, you know, I actually don't even know what the official name. National Instruments or National NI. National Instruments. What, that's what everybody, uh, at least here yeah. in Austin, that's what we all call it. All right. So, uh, so it sounds like you did that. So you were there for a few. Were you working on like their testing uh, products or like were you just kind of classic software engineer? Like, what was your day to day job like? Uh, pretty much classic, classic software engineer. So like. Um, National Instruments may, builds basically solutions for other engineers to implement, in, in my case, kind of virtual measurement system. So you, instead of purchasing separate instrument for everything you need to measure, you know, like voltmeter, mm-hmm. thermometer, so on and so forth, you basically have a data acquisition board that goes into your computer. And through that data acquisition board, you can measure anything. And once you measure anything, then you need to process all of the signals. So that's really the code I was writing. And uh, like my project there that I spent probably more time than anything else, it was uh, like hypertrend control. This is how you can plot all the signal that it jumps up and down. And it also had a built-in real-time streaming database that I had to maintain. So that was uh, my kind of two projects, the streaming database and, uh, and the visualization for it. Well, that was a lot well, of fun. Was, yeah, like, like this C, all like C++ stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, this was all kind of like, you, you didn't know how good, how smart you were learning all of this stuff. I'm sure all this <laughs> comes in handy in, in later in your, your career, for sure. Yeah, okay, so, so you, just a kind of testament mm-hmm. on how great uh, engineering culture was there. Like, to this day, when people sometimes ask me what was, uh, I don't know, like the hardest bug you had to fix, a technical challenge, I am surprised how frequently I had to travel all the way back to National Instruments days to kind of think about all these cool challenges. Yeah, you definitely are. Well, you're right. I mean, like anything, testing hardware, probably the hardest to build, right? It's got to be right. So, I mean, when you get into it. Um, all right. So it sounds like from there, and you know, you know, you've decided at some point to go out and start Mailgun. And at some point, you know, in your uh, your descriptions here, I know you end up in New York City. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that in a second. So, like, what what was the journey here? Like, why did you start Mailgun? And then how did you get to New York City? Uh, so the the answer was that I loved being at National Instruments so much that I started to take it for granted a little bit. And my thinking went, well, if this is my first experience, if this is my first job, if this is me being an adult 1.0, I right. can only imagine what's going to happen next. And what, what happened, so I decided to quit and I just tried to do something else. Uh-huh. And I was so disappointed by overall kind of state of software industry, let's put it this way. Because mm-hmm. if you're building uh, software that's not running on a production floor, that's not running inside a virtual instrument, 
so the, the kind of quality bar is much, like uh, much lower uh, generally and i was deeply unhappy with kind of several jobs i had and uh, that's kind of what led me to starting my first company like i needed uh, a paycheck <laughs> i needed to live <laughs> and i wanted to have a job that's interesting and really? i at, at that point i knew like i want to build software that other engineers use because they right. will because they're demanding because they will force me to make good products and also because i understand them because i am them so i had like, this really strong conviction that i want to build tools for engineers i don't want to do anything else mm -hmm. and i'm happy to do it my entire life like i don't think it's will ever get boring and it was challenging for me to find an interesting job so i had a choice like go to microsoft because they had developer tools division uh over there or do something else and i decided i'm gonna try to start my own company and the, the, it, it's interesting how it happened i went to startup school in stanford uh mm -hmm. maybe it was year 2000 nine or eight anyway jeff bezos was there so this is what that was uh the time when aws was brand new and okay. they didn't even call it aws i think it was just ec2 and s3 nothing else existed so he was already kind of famous billionaire and uh and he had this bodyguards following him everywhere but he wasn't <laughs> cool like developers uh -huh. were not impressed right. and he had this presentation with where he was trying to convince the audience that the cloud computing is the future and you should all run applications on on my cloud, but people are skeptical, uh, skeptical and cynical. Mm -hmm. So, and it's actually on YouTube. You could probably find it. Like there's the moment when you could see when Mailgun was formed. Someone, like he had Q&A with engineers at the end and they were asking him questions about AWS. And you know how engineers get sometimes? They ask you a question not to get an answer. They ask right. you a question to kind of insult you and show off how smart they are. <laughs> yes, it was, yes, I do know this. Go <laughs> it was on. actually kind of funny. So and one of them asked, like, hey, Jeff, how come your email completely, like, I cannot do any email traffic in or out of your cloud. So it means completely useless because every web application needs a sign up flow or I mm -hmm. uh, forgot your password thing. And Bezos got confused on stage. And I think he kind of deflected that question to his VP engineering. There was like some other character kind of briefly showed up. And I was listening to it and it was just occurring to me. So effectively, we're all agreeing that this cloud thingy, it's a good idea, um, but it's broken simply because it's early. So we need to solve a bunch of issues. And this email, it's such an obvious one, particularly uh, because Twilio was just launched. Mm -hmm. The relatively... Anyway, so I've heard of Twilio around the same time. And and I just thought, oh, I have the side project I'm working on. It's this email technology because I wanted to re-implement POP3, IMAP, SMTP, all of these protocols. I wanted to have like fresh versions of those. Was the, and it was just was temporary passion of mine at the time. And that's how Mailgun happened. I figured I already wrote all the code. I just need to put API in front of it. And uh, there are plenty of people in this very room that are telling Bezos that that's what they, what they want. So that was my research. It was <laughs> it was an accident, and that's how Mailgun happened. I like it. No, you, you, it's even better. You know, Jeff Bezos gave you your first idea, right? That's you know, that's the way to think it of it. It was I mean... the anonymous engineer in the audience. Mm -hmm. Bezos simply, I think, he was convincing enough to make everyone believe that cloud is going to happen. And look, it's an obvious thing. Like anyone who manually ever lifted uh, like for you server and managed to hold it at like six feet high elevation and stick it into the rails accurately so it will go into the rack without cutting their fingers <laughs> all these people knew instantly that cloud is going to be big <laughs> because you don't want to do that job ever again
Yes, I think we can all say you only have to rack and stack servers maybe once or twice to say to yourself, I never want to do this again, ever. Yeah, so, I have I a mean, few scars on my fingers. I was not I'm, good at racking servers. So well, I was just like, sign me up. Yep. Yeah, just the way you said it and cut yourself. Because like, I think <laughs> if you haven't I cut yourself on so a rack. Sharp? I never understood. It's almost like on purpose. Like, like it does. if Apple ever designed a server, <laughs> I would like there's so much room for improvement. I, w- I would agree with that. Like, why, why are you almost uh, risk death to install servers? I'll, I'll never quite understand. So they even call them blades, right? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Like, why are you calling something a blade if you know that like there are going to be people whose full time right. job will be to sticking them into these racks? No, I love it. It's like, what are we selling here? Razors? No, we're selling computers. Stop <laughs> doing stuff. Yeah. Call them blades. I like it. Um, well, I always thought like Mailgun, uh, just like, I don't know. I've just, I've always just loved this name. I just think that name is just so kudos to you. I assume you came up with it, but it's like, it's super simple. But like, when you see it, like, you're like, yeah, I do need that. Like, you just kind of know, like instinctually, like, oh, I do need this oh, thing that sends mail wherever I want it. it. Yeah. It's, th- thank you for reminding me. So when I was learning English, when you, uh, listening to your language that you don't know, like the words, this, they kind of sound funny. And sometimes they sound cool for no reason. They just, you just you hear a sound and say, oh, that's kind of interesting, but you have no idea what it means. And at the time when I was learning English, I learned I heard the word nail gun. Oh, okay, yeah. And I thought uh-huh. that's a cool word. I'm gonna look it up. Like, oh, that's what it means. It's a tool. And then I thought this is so interesting. Not only it's a tool, and I love tools because I'm an engineer, but also it sounds really cool. And I made a decision that I will have a software project that I'm going to call nail gun. I don't even know what it will do. I'm just going to keep that name around. And when I uh, decided that I want to go into this email business, then Mailgun was just uh, instantly uh, picked simply because I had the name on the shelf. Listen, that's great. It's like a song. Sometimes you're just like, I got a great, I got a great song, a great lyrics, got a great name. I've just got to find the right thing. So Mailgun was destined to happen for you, I think. Yep, yep. Uh, well, I want to like read this. This is right off your LinkedIn. And I just, I just like, I just thought like some people's LinkedIn is kind of boring, but like, I just thought yours is very, was perfect. This is what you say about like co-founding a uh, mail uh, gun. You said a uh, quote, wasted half a year trying to get NYC investors excited about email uh, servers in the cloud, moved, moved the company to San Francisco and raised uh, whatever, 1.2 million um, pretty soon. So I just think within this statement is like three things I love. It's sort of, uh, there, there's sort of some frustration, right? And then there's, uh, some like execution and there's some wisdom, right? Like all, like <laughs> all tied inside of that. Right. So, so I just want to know, Oh, like what was going on in New York city when you tried to explain like mail gun to investors in New York, they're just like, get out. They, they just didn't get it. Like what happened there? Oh, it's, it's almost basically the same thing with Emacs, right? So if you <laughs> fail something, you instantly start, start disliking it. So it was right? totally my fault. Uh, I, I have this deep admiration for uh, Jeff uh, uh, Lawson, the CEO of Twilio, because if you go back in time, just like when Bezos was showing uh, EC2 or S3, it mm-hmm. was a the new category. It was something that hadn't really existed before. So you have to educate people. You have to get them excited. And uh, I was underestimating the importance of being a good educator. And the reason I'm talking about this is because when um, Jeff was pitching Twilio to investors, if you think about it, there was not a company before that that said that my product is an API. Right. That's it. Mm-hmm. In fact, numerous investors, when they uh, heard my mailgun pitch, they would say, we don't get it. Usually you first launch a product. And then you add API on top. 
and you're telling me that the product itself is an API, it makes no sense. And it was infuriating to me. Like, why doesn't it make sense? Like any sense? I think I explained it clearly. The developers <laughs> will just use an API and I will deliver their emails and they will give me money. What, what's so complicated? <laughs> yeah, why don't you get uh, this? But uh-huh. Jeff Crank, so the, he figured out how to explain to investors what this means. And that's really what made Twilio so huge because it was like first successful API company. Um, and that's really what was my frustration is that I was just simply not good enough of an educator. Uh, but when you moved to San Francisco at the time, people didn't need to be as educated they simply needed to be excited and that and also twilio also helped so when i got into y combinator i i think i said like one sentence that uh, that characterized mailgun is like it's just like twilio but for email and for bay area investors that is often enough and for that i'm grateful so bay area at the time maybe it's different now it was just a fantastic place to be first time entrepreneur because they forgive you for not being a perfect educator. No, but they good. rely on you getting better over time. So, no, yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. I th- you know, it's interesting as I was trying to think back on it is, uh, you know, Twilio, right? I always think it's claim to fame was sending SMS messages, right? That was the thing. Like, and that was like sending email was maybe hard, but like sending SMS messages seemed like just voodoo. Like, it just seemed it like, like it was, magic. Yeah. I was like, the fact that they could do it. And then, yeah, then I see your point, like coming back. Like once they've established that, you're like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be great to also send email that way? I can see why that sort of paved. Uh, and then it's even funny as you were talking there, because I think Twi- Twilio didn't they buy SendGrid? So it's like everything comes like full circle, right? Because I think SendGrid is big in the email stuff. Well, you mentioned Y Combinator. Can't I got to you know at least ask about that? What was what was the application uh, experience like? What was it, what was it like being? Because you're still, I mean, it's fairly new at that point, right? I mean, still, it seems more early. So was it a, a, a different experience than it is now? You see. Every time you meet someone who's been through Y Combinator throughout mm-hmm. the years, it doesn't matter when. It could be 2011, could be 2015, could be 2019. You're basically hearing the same thing that people say, oh, YC is not the same anymore. Uh-huh. Everybody was, oh, it used to be better. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so believe it or not, that's what I was told in 2011, that, oh, YC was better. Even though oh. back then, Y Combinator <laughs> okay. was 42 companies in, in our batch. Look, it was awesome. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, YC was exactly what I needed at that time. Uh, it's a, it's almost like getting this adrenaline shot uh, that kind of quickly transforms you from not only an engineer, but also it, it gives you all these kind of additional skills that you need to get the company off the ground very quickly. So at the time, it felt like Y Combinator. This is where engineers go to transform themselves into founders. And it was indeed the case. So, so yeah, it sounds like it, you know, like, like many people, a great experience there. And so that led to, so, so Mailgun ultimately acquired by Rackspace. Like what happened there? How, how did the acquisition go down? What was that like? So at Mailgun in the early days, we, I think maybe it keeps, it, it helps to keep in mind that at the time when Mailgun was started, uh, there was very little investments uh, happening because there was financial crisis going on. Remember like 2008, 2009. So there was this famous memo, I think, I think Sequoia maybe put it out about, we don't know what's going to happen. Yep. Like one of uh, major uh, publications came out with this uh, cover that said, if I remember correctly, I think it said, like, is capitalism over? Question mark. <laughs> so that was not the greatest time to raise money. So it wasn't just a... So for that reason, we were extremely uh, 
kind of scrappy with money. We would never spend any money. We were treating every problem like we were fixing every problem with brute forcing. Basically, crazy hours, no weekends, um, no vacations. So, and when we started to see kind of early signs of success, early signs of traction and growth, the acquirers showed up. And when acquirers showed up and you weak, um, this is when you sell simply because you're weak. And we gotten weak because we were just working too hard. So that was uh, probably what happened with Mailgun. So I will say, yeah, we got acquired too early and Mailgun later became like, the kind of spun off out of Rackspace. We became an independent company, much, much bigger, much, much more successful. Uh, congrats to the team that made it happen. But unfortunately, I wasn't uh, around for for a ride. So that's really kind of how the acquisition happened. And the reason we went with Rackspace was... Um, I was starting to get worried a little bit about what happens if AWS becomes dominant, like the monopoly, like everyone runs on AWS. And it was so, it felt like that's where the world is going because they had amazing product. They had amazing product. They were executing well. Um, There was, and I didn't want Microsoft 2.0 to kind of happen because my previous career at National Instruments and a little bit after, it was all Windows and it was kind of getting uh, stagnating. And it was appealing that Rackspace was this kind of challenger. Like we are open source cloud. That was their message, that we want our cloud to be more open. We want it to be um, not just code is available, but you can run your own kind of Rackspace cloud and your own data center. So that's kind of why we picked Rackspace. And I do think um, that, Ultimately, it was a good choice because it exposed us to um, all kinds of problems that exist in cloud computing. Like working at a second biggest, at the time, second biggest cloud provider, uh, having access to thousands and thousands of customers and having uh, the seeing scalability challenges at Rackspace scale definitely allowed us to become better engineers, better entrepreneurs. And all of that kind of led to uh, creation of Teleport uh, a few years later. All right. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like, you know, I mean, it sounds like maybe some hard lessons there for you, but like, you know, hey, anytime you start a company and sell it, you know, that's success, you know, for 99% of the world, for sure. So now you mentioned, so this sort of, it sounds like you had your experience at Rackspace, I'm sure, you know, living through the integration of any acquisition, I'm sure that was a joy, but it, uh, obviously you've kind of left there and then you went on to, to start Teleport. So maybe, and I think maybe you gave us a little part of the answer already that you like to build tools for engineers, but like maybe tell us, you know, what Teleport is and then specifically, why did you choose this as your next venture after all your experience at Mailgun? Sure. So like, First, let me just give you an official message. The Teleport is an open source tool, which is the easiest and most secure way to access infrastructure. So you have your cloud infrastructure, which means you have servers, you have Kubernetes clusters, you have things like Grafana dashboards, you have uh, databases. So all of these things, they exist inside of your cloud accounts. It's on your infrastructure. And every single component of what I just enumerated has its own remote access, like servers, Speaker SSH, MongoDB has MongoDB protocol, Kubernetes has its own. So Teleport allows you to basically log in into everything all at once. And it's the most secure way of doing it because it uses certificates under the hood. So Teleport doesn't have a single password, a single secret anywhere in its design, with the exception of the certificate authority that lives on a special hardware module. So um, that is what Teleport is. It's something that I always wanted to have as I was an engineer myself. It's it's a it's a solution that every organization builds internally, 
basically every company that I've ever learned about, like how they operate, everyone built their own Kubernetes flavor. Like even before Kubernetes, like every company had its own kind of platform. This is our deployment thing that manages everywhere. That's why Kubernetes was such a huge success because it's standardized something that everyone was already doing. And Teleport is doing the same thing for Access. Every company has a, co a combination of VPNs, uh, prox uh, SSH proxies, jump hosts, um, or Kubernetes proxies. Like Teleport replaces all of it with uh, single endpoints. Like you access all of your infrastructure through this. Not only it's easier, so you're more productive, it feels good, uh, but it's by far the most secure design. And the, the way we arrived at this uh, um, idea was interesting that I loved talking to Rackspace customers. It was uh, probably the same reason why I loved working at National Instruments, because you get exposed to so many other engineers, right? Um, it's really interesting to... For example, have a conversation with folks that, um, like I, I talk to very much, like lots of companies you've heard, like uh, Atlassian, for example, or GitHub. And, you know, engineers always, we love talking about challenges we're facing and what kind of scaling things or what what kind of attacks that we're seeing. Because uh, GitHub was always kind of, like there were DDoS people constantly going after them. And uh, learning from each other. So all of these conversations led me to believe that we're we all struggling more than we're willing to admit from complexity of computing environments. So if you look inside of a AWS account, you, you look at all the, the stack that your software is running on top of, it's incredibly complex. Nothing ever gets obsolete. I, I remember people were hoping actually that containers might replace VMs, then we don't need to deal with virtualization. No, in a typical fashion, we put containers on top of VMs. And if something else comes up, we're going to put it <laughs> on top of containers. So, yes. so yes. which so means correct. that it, mm -hmm. now you have many, many copies of everything. And uh, so when I was having these conversations with kind of major users of cloud computing, they were basically telling me that, look, our operations teams are growing faster than our software teams. That means that you get more people who manage your infrastructure, have more. Basically, your DevOps is growing faster than your application development. And then, and, and this is probably why, even on Hacker News, you see sometimes people would be discussing like a famous company and they would be like, what? They have 5,000 engineers. What do they do? Like the product hasn't changed in years. What, what do these all people do? Well, the answer is all these people run software in the cloud. Software in the cloud doesn't run by itself. If your DevOps team disappears, like they all decide to go on very long sabbatical, no computing for you. You're going to go down eventually. <laughs> and that to me is, is kind of a strange thing. We as an industry, we exist to automate things. We're basically destroying jobs, replacing them with automation. We're promising the world that we're going to do self-driving car. Meanwhile, our own databases don't run by themselves. Like they collapse if our DevOps teams uh, like make a mistake. So that's really what's my kind of general orientation. I was a big fan of Heroku, by the way, when it launched. It felt mm -hmm. like that computing needs to be like that. You type in a single command, you hit enter, then you turn off your laptop and you're done. Like you go, like you, you go um, take vacation. You don't need <laughs> DevOps. Your app runs because it's on Heroku. And I really was hoping and I wanted... Rackspace Cloud at the time to become this kind of Uber Heroku, that we're going to do it for all applications. 
it turned out to be really, really hard to do. And we started this company to like try to take a stab at this problem. Like, can we make applications run by themselves? And then eventually, as we were working on that, uh, make applications run without DevOps teams. And as we were exposed to more and more and more DevOps teams, we repeatedly have heard that the access is a major uh, component of that complexity. And access is also something that people are willing to spend money on. Because if you look at your stack, you have like SSH at the bottom, then you have Kubernetes API, then you have containers, and some containers actually have SSH inside. Don't ask me why, people do it. <laughs> and, and, and then you have uh, like Kubernetes API, and then you have uh, Grafana dashboard, and then you have Jenkins, then you have MongoDB, then you have MySQL. I can go on and on and on. And every single layer in that sandwich has its own remote access protocol. Every single layer listens on a socket. It has encrypt crypto config. It has its own user management. It has its own login. It has its own audit log. So if you were to do computing securely, you actually need to have expertise on your team, operational expertise, to set up that remote access properly for dozens of little things. Yeah, and then it has so to go. And then mm -hmm. it has to work in staging and production and across different regions. And, and and when when people join the team and leave the team, all of that needs to kind of work. We we kept getting that signal that it's a major source of not just pain but also risk, and that's what Teleport ended up solving. All right, that makes sense. So let's dig in a little bit more on Teleport. So now, can I use Teleport? Obviously, you know, you went through kind of the cloud access pretty significantly. Can I use it to? What if I have stuff on premise as well? Can I use Teleport to get into all my on premise? Uh, stuff that maybe I haven't migrated to the cloud or maybe won't be moved to the cloud? Absolutely. You could use Teleport to get access to uh, anything that you want. Teleport is a single file, by the way. It's a single binary. It's a replacement for SSHD, so you could put it on Raspberry Pi if you want. You could. <laughs> okay. you could I can let you print on my printer through Teleport. <laughs> okay. Or you could give me access to your Sonos in your house. Uh, and, and the idea is that uh, the te Teleport has these four components and it's connectivity, authentication, authorization, and audit, and it implements it for all protocols. So connectivity means that I, like Teleport enables connectivity to anything you want. On a technical level, it works through this multi-protocol identity aware proxy. So you have to have a proxy in the cloud. We can host one for you, or you can download Teleport. It's open source, if I haven't mentioned that. And you can run it yourself. And then all of these things, they connect to that proxy, and then Teleport kind um, of establishes connections through these proxies. And obviously, they're end-to-end -end encrypted. So effectively, it replaces a bunch of things all at once. It replaces your VPNs. You don't need VPN of any kind. Uh, it replaces um, all of your built-in authentication, authorization. So because Teleport actually will do it for you, for all of these resources. That's kind of how it works. Okay, so you, you really kind of piqued my interest when you said before, you said... You know, everything uses a certificate. It's like, this is a bold statement here. So, because like, a lot of these products behind the scenes, I'm sure you are more than aware, right? They'll, uh, especially like, you know, if you need to log in as an administrator, right? They'll, uh, that product will know the, you know, will set the password, right? And then will rotate, you know, the password after it's used to like, you know, essentially make it more secure. So behind the scenes, like it'll use passwords either where it feels like it has to, and then it will make it uh, easy to rotate them. So, so take me through, I mean, I just wanna make sure I got it right. So you're saying you're doing all of this through certificates. You are not doing this kind of password, save the password, rotate the password, keep it from someone. You're doing it all through certificates. I get that right? Yes, you got this right. I cannot 
overstate this enough that there are so many remote access solutions out there, open source or commercial ones that are essentially password managers. They pretend to be something else. They have these user interfaces that don't really say password manager, but that's what they are, which means that they take your secrets and they encrypt them, obviously. Like I, I'm pretty sure that there are smart people working on the systems and they exist in some kind of encrypted form. And then when you log in, they temporarily decrypt it. Uh, like we believe that all of that stuff is obsolete simply because it exposes you to human error. If there is a secret and the secret is encrypted and there is encryption decryption happening, eventually there is going to be a bad build or a bad config and you might get owned. It's just, it's not, if you rely, if you start introducing reliance on humans doing the right thing and you're doing it many, many, many times, eventually humans will do the wrong thing. So for that reason, we believe in a design that completely eliminates human error because it scales. It means that you could have because you can make decision like there is no secret millions of times and you will still end up with zero secrets that could be stolen or misconfigured. And for that reason, Teleport, yes, only supports certificates. We only support certificates for SSH. We don't even have like password authentication or public-private key authentication. We believe those things are just obsolete, like we're done. They're not scaling. This is not for cloud use. It's maybe fine if you have a Raspberry Pi at home, but not for your AWS. No, only certificates because certificates, they expire automatically. Certificates, they have your role, your permissions, metadata inside. So you have that information on the wire all the time, which means you could do role-based access control for SSH, which is not possible if you don't have certificates. Um, And it can go on and on and on, like why certificates are better. But yes, Teleport is extremely opinionated, radical design. And and right now, security industry in general is moving towards secretless, passwordless. So any kind of access design that has secrets stored anywhere is already compromised. That's that's kind of our official view, and that's what kind of Teleport represents. And well, it works would, beautifully, by the way. So yeah. unless you have this backwards requirement that you have this, I don't know, some like really old uh, Cisco switch or something that has password-based SSH and you cannot swap it, then no, you will not be able to access it with Teleport. Teleport well, that's where I was going. It's, I mean, uh, listen, I mean, I think you, <laughs> you said opinionated. I was like, wow, this is about as opinionated as I've heard. Like, I mean, because you just like, you just don't have it, which is it's both provocative, but it also does like, I guess immediately, this is sort of maybe the legacy uh concern coming out of me is like well i don't know like like you know there's so many different things you're trying to authenticate to like you know you enumerated many of them before and it's like i can't say i am personally on up on all of them but i feel like you you run into these instances where it's like the thing you want to authenticate to it's old or it can't be changed it has these weird requirements and that's where people get stuck they're like the only way to do it is to do some type of password and do some type of password rotation um like do you find that or is that something that you just you find ways around it. Like, how are you dealing with that? Like the a truly truthful answer is it depends. We definitely have lost some deals or use cases where customers said, we want to use teleport to access certain things. And those, and those things, they just need to, um, like they insist on public private keys, for example. And we would say, no, we're not going to do that. And the reason is because the, the way teleport is designed, like you have to have common foundation. So in our case, this common foundation is completely passwordless, completely secretless, certificate-based foundation. It's very similar to Let's Encrypt. It's very similar mm-hmm. to blockchain. It basically, it's 
it, it feels the same. So there are no secrets, and it's uh, and it's relatively lightweight. And then we built all of our resource support on top of it. So MongoDB access is built on top of it, SSH built. So which means that we like all the capabilities that all of these workloads get, they derive from certificates. So if we were to introduce passwords like somewhere on the on the side, it means that your access instantly becomes extremely complicated. Like you ask me a question about anything and I will have like, well, it depends. If you configured it with certificates, then these things will work. But if you configure it with keys, then like it's going to be different. And that is the huge no-no in security. You have to have a system that's easy to reason about. It needs to be primitive to reason about. Because simple things scale, simple things are secure because humans don't make mistakes with simple systems. And certificate is the simplest thing you could use. Like it's actually surprisingly, it's the simplest design. Because think about it, certificates don't even need database. Because you issue it on the fly, I give it to you, and I know the certificate is going to expire in an hour. You can just throw it away. You don't need to store yep. it. Um, so you, that's really why teleport is a single file. This is why we managed it to be so small. People put it into smart devices that then they sell to other people and they remotely manage them through teleport. So that we enable this use case because it's so lightweight. Because if it was some kind of like a typical SaaS contraption with a bunch of databases and message buses and ooh, like it will be extremely limited in how it could be deployed and used. Okay, so let's go go one level deep. So you've talked, you've convinced me it's easy to, uh, it's small. You've said, said that multiple. So let's let's just pick anything. I mean, I think EC2 is probably what everybody knows, but pick anything that you want. Like, what do I what do I have to do to get this installed and um, you know set up so I can actually start using it? What do I do? So the easiest answer is you go uh, to goteleport.com and you hit on get teleport, then you download open source version and you go through quick start. And quick start, we have kind of different flavors of it because now people are very opinionated. Some things want to do everything inside of a Docker. Mm-hmm. Others prefer kind of raw installation. Um, I'm more of a maybe lower level uh, kind of person. So when I download something, I want to run it myself. I don't want Docker. It just gets in the way. I might use it later in production, but to understand how things work. So for people like myself, you just download Teleport, um, unzip the file. Then you type Teleport start. That's it. You're running Teleport. Uh, and then you just go through a quick start, go through a quick demo, and then you just, okay, how do I deploy it? Because, again, it's just a Linux daemon. Okay, and then I so can just basically it's deploy very, it. It's yeah. trivial okay. to put it into, you could put it into a Kubernetes cluster, or you could make it a daemon kind of uh, launched by systemd. It's really up to you. It's very simple. So I think the end goal, right, is, you know, obviously kind of you mentioned DevOps before. It's like, hey, you want to get this, you know, people that are doing it at scale, right, it just becomes part of the standard, part of their image or their you know, container or whatever, right? So it's just always ready to go. And then everybody knows that, like, hey, in this environment, we, we use Teleport to do all of our authentication. Yeah, yeah. Is that? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? And and we're working on uh, some capability that I always wanted to have. It's uh, software updates are really annoying. Don't we all agree? And uh, And it's particularly painful in the cloud environment because you have a stack and it has all the different components. It's like if you're running Ubuntu, you need to update that. If you're running on Kubernetes and you're self-managing it and the new version comes out, that's a major headache. So we didn't want Teleport to be one of those things that gives you a headache. So uh, this uh, upcoming version will have an auto-update capability, which means you deploy Teleport once and it will it will always be the latest version. And that's probably what you want. Okay, that's all right. So very impressive. Now we can't go... Um... You know, we can't ever leave the conversation without talking to our friends, the auditors, right? Because auditors, 
always they always uh, reared their heads at some point. Like, so what's what's your story around auditing? Do you have the ability to kind of like show who has access and like give this evidence to auditors? How do you approach that problem? Ah, so that's the kind of auditors that you're talking about. Uh, because there's another like uh, the interesting uh, uh, situation is when we launched Teleport, like a lot of people said, this is incredible what you built, but we don't know you. Like you're brand new. Like we have existing mm-hmm. solutions, like OpenSSH, for example, they've been around for a long time. How do we trust that you're secure? So we had to rely on external security uh, researchers and auditors. They would go and audit your code line by line. You know, uh, the, um, what was the company we used? Uh, we actually used a, a few. So we had auditors audit Teleport source code to make sure it's secure numerous mm-hmm. times, different companies. And we published reports simply to convince people that, yes, this is new kid on the block, but there are more security people on it already than some of more can establish security solutions. And uh, to, to answer the actual questions, uh, <laughs> question about auditors. So like the auditors, they... Uh, they usually exist within certain contexts. So you're going through right. a PCI, like you try to get like a PCI compliant or FedRAMP. So they essentially going through this checklist. In fact, all of these standards, it's just a checklist of things that need to be true. You need to be able to yeah. say, yep, like that's true. That's what we do around here. And those checklists, they have this abbreviation, like in FedRAMP, you will see like AC101, AC135. They have this code codes it starts even with physical security like data center has an armed guard like yep check like moving on (laughs) so teleport essentially has these tables already built for you so uh and they're published on our website you can go and click on how teleport works and there's kind of fedram compliance and and there are these tables that these are things that need to be true and they are true with teleport and here's why so you simply point your finger at that and the auditors especially if they've seen teleport already they already know that you're doing all of these things properly. Now, as you were talking there, I, I was just thinking to myself, like, I really think the auditors would love this because like normally it's like, well, who has access to what and where the password saved? And like your answer is just gonna be like, we don't store any of that. It's all exactly. Just exactly. And then it's like the rest of the, <laughs> I'm just envisioning this long Excel spreadsheet. The rest of the Excel spreadsheet is sort of re- irrelevant, right? Well, I just, they don't have any of these passwords. So that's a good, that's a very compelling uh, um a story for auditors. So that'll make all, all of them happy. So um, as we kind of wrap up here, I guess, you know, kind of, you know, what, what do you sell? If I want to come to you and I want to pay you money for teleport, what will I get? Uh, how do I do that? Like, what do you want to tell me about pricing? Like, how does all that work? How does the business side work? So if you would like to fall in love with teleport, I would invite you to do it with open source version, simply because you could do it in the comfort of your own kind of time frame. Just go download it, play with it, uh, join our Slack channel. If you go to goteleport.com slash Slack. Uh, but if you like Teleport and you want to try some of the enterprise features that are primarily oriented around scale in compliance, so it's for companies, maybe like 100 employees at least. Um, yeah, uh, go and try our free uh, cloud evaluation uh, trial. So you can actually click on a button that will give you fully hosted Teleport. Uh, that will speed things up. But if you want to meet with our experts and try to understand how Teleport will solve your particular uh, problem, because everyone has different kind of deployment uh, and infrastructure footprint story. Um, so you just fill out the form and we'll reach out to you and we'll talk to you. And Teleport pricing is based on like how many people um, you have. It's basically the size of the organization, the engineering organization. All right. Well, very so good. If you're small, well, you're not going to pay a lot. If you're huge, right. you're well, going to pay uh... us a lot of money. 
I think you've you've kind of given some nice challenges to the listeners. And I'd like to see some people in the software defined talk Slack. Like, try it out. Let me know. I'd like to you know. Does it uh, does it always work with certificates? If not, you know, I know Teleport has a Slack here. I'm going to put that in the link so you can probably go jump in that Slack. I bet you they'd be happy to answer all your questions. Um, but before we go, sort of off topic here, I feel like I got to ask you now because you, we've talked so much about password lists. So. What is your personal approach to like managing passwords? Do you like I use one password as my password manager? I just like, do you have some innovative solution that you've cracked the code to managing passwords in your personal life? So I definitely try to reduce my reliance on passwords in general. So I would probably even say that not opening an account somewhere, if possible, like check out this guest. I like that Mm -hmm. option. I don't know (laughs) if you're going to come back. I don't really need to have an account. Uh, And then when passwords are inevitable, yes, I use one password. Um, so we like, we have a security team. I simply ask them, what do you think is the best choice? So it's like one password we believe is, is pretty awesome, but I'm still pretty paranoid. And for certain secrets that I just absolutely must have, I use uh, kind of my local system. It's a command line password manager called simply pass. Yeah. And you just encrypt everything yourself on your local, on your Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, I picked all the the crypto algorithms that (laughs) according to my knowledge are basically the best and my most cherished passwords. That's what I use. But I will say that for my personal infrastructure, and I used to have um, like section of a rack in a data center in Fremont with my own kind of toys running there. Mm -hmm. And I have my home data lab. Um, That's what teleport protects. So I'm not worried about that at all because there is no password. All right. Well, that's good. Well, I, I, I dream of a day where, uh, I don't know, we'll call it a teleport for consumers, right? Every time I'm in one password, which I love, I'm a huge fan of recommend. I showed many times, but, uh, especially as I show one password to like non-technical people and they have to kind of get used to it. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's coming right. up. I, I you do know, you think just, it's frustrating. So go ahead. It, it will happen. I think it's coming up and I do think that we're probably going to see some increased government regulation around this stuff, but I do think that we should be logging in with our fingerprints, with our sense, with, uh, with TPMs on our MacBooks and stuff. So I do think that overall security industry and access industry, not just infrastructure, like in general for all of us, yeah. like we are moving passwordless. Passwordless is simply passwords, I'm sorry, or secrets. They simply don't work. I you couldn't agree more. Well, let's hope. Let's hope in, you know, in a few years we meet again. We're all using Face ID or some, some equivalent. So uh, now if uh, people, you mentioned uh, Go Teleport and I have other links there, but if they want to reach out to you personally, uh, what's the best way to get you up? So they can find me on Twitter. So my last name, Consovoy, is what I am. But also they can send me an email. I'm ev at goteleport.com. Always happy to engage with a stranger and learn something about them. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, Ev, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was great. And uh, if this is the first time you're listening to Software Defined Talk, then welcome. Uh, you can probably subscribe right now in your podcast player. If you'd like a sticker, just send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I'll be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.